keep going here this morning. Uh, yesterday, I, uh, I got invited to be part of uh, Demo Day at Joe and Megan Brink's house. So I don't know, uh, Joe and Megan are here this morning. They are renoing their house. And yesterday was the day where they took hammers and started swinging at walls. Uh, I'm sure if you've ever watched HGTV, you have a sense of what was going on. And I just need to be clear, uh, I did not go to demo day. So I was not a part of it, but I'm just telling you that it happened, right? And it's important, uh, it, it connects to what we're talking about this morning because uh, it reminds us of why the Apostles' Creed is an important thing. I will make the connection, just hang with me, okay? What we've been talking about this summer, we've been working through the Apostles' Creed uh, line by line. And we've talked about it in a few different ways, about how it's an anchor that holds us to the bedrock of Scripture. Uh, and that it's a, it's a statement that reminds us, that teaches us about the load-bearing walls of the Christian faith. Because yesterday, on demo day, there are certain walls that were marked out in the Brinks house for destruction, right? Things that needed to come down so they could rebuild this thing bigger and better. But there were also parts of the house, there were walls that needed to stay up. There were walls that if they had been knocked down would have undermined the structural integrity of the house. And what's true about our faith all the time is that we're constantly learning and growing and having our faith formed and shaped uh, by God's word, by the Holy Spirit in our lives. And yet as our faith grows, there are certain load-bearing walls that we wanna make sure that we respect, that we know, that we hang on to, that help ground what we believe. And the Apostles' Creed lays out for us, it's laid out for the church for nearly 2,000 years what those load-bearing walls are. So, so far this summer, we've talked about the fact uh, that we believe, that we're a people who who believe, who are confessing a set of beliefs. That we believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And that we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And today, the line that we're talking about, I'm gonna write it up here so we can follow along, uh, is that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Yes, okay. So these are the lines from the creed. Can you guys see that in the back? I know the red is kind of challenging. but uh, These are the lines that we're talking about from the creed this morning. I wanna have them up here so that as we're working through, you can kind of reference back. This is kind of the anchor that we're working through this morning. And we're gonna be doing it by working through a piece of scripture. So I'm gonna invite Sam Marshall to come up. Sam. Sam sitting in the back just enjoying the long walk down the red carpet here. Uh, Sam's gonna be reading for us out of the book of Galatians. It'll be Galatians 4, verses four through seven. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip there. It'll be up on the screen, you can follow along. Uh, so Sam is gonna, Sam's gonna read this for us. All right, this is God's word. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
and if a son, then an heir through God. Thanks. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. Lord, we trust that you delight and desire to speak to it, speak to us through it this morning. Lord, that the same creative power uh, that conceived our Lord in the womb of the Virgin Mary is the same Holy Spirit that is bringing your word into our hearts and enlightening us this morning. We pray that you would do that. We trust you to do that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we, as we work through the text this morning, we're going to be talking about uh, three, three things that we learn from the virgin birth. We're going to talk about uh, the beauty of the virgin birth. We're going to talk about the implications of the virgin birth. And then we're going to talk about the intention of it. And really, what we're going to kind of discover as we go throughout the, the sermon this morning is that the virgin birth really helps us unpack and understand the incarnation of Jesus. We use this word incarnation. It's a theological word about uh, the fact that God himself would come and put on flesh. So in a sense, when we're talking about the beauty of the virgin birth, we're talking about the beauty of the incarnation. Right? When we're talking about the implications of the virgin birth, we're talking about the implications of the incarnation, the intention of the virgin birth, the intention of the incarnation. And as we've been working through the creed, there the other statements that we've come across so far, uh, they may be kind of relatively easy for you to accept, right? We believe in God the Father Almighty. Okay, maker of heaven and earth. Sure, Jesus Christ is only Son, our Lord. But then we get to conceive by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Born of a virgin? What? But it's the part of the creed that, that first grabs us and makes us, makes us wonder or ask, is, is this real? It, it forces us to confront the supernatural as it invades and enters into our world. And that can be a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. And you may think that, well, you know, it, it's hard for us as modern people who understand science, but, you know, people back then, well, of course they believed stuff like this because they didn't believe in science or whatever. Uh, I just want to remind you that that's not true. That the miracles, like the virgin birth, were just as shocking to people in first century Palestine as they are to you. You know, their rumors about Jesus' illegitimacy followed him his entire life. And the reason they followed him is that people did not believe that a virgin birth was possible. They knew how this worked even then, right? So this is not about, oh, a pre-scientific time and now a scientific time. That's not it at all. And there are actually people who, uh, this ha happened a lot in the 1800s, kind of in, a, in their desire to, to save the Christian faith. What they tried to do was strip out all the supernatural and they would go through and explain kind of miracle by miracle what was actually happening. Like, well, you know, when Jesus walked on water, what really happened is that Jesus was walking on a sandbar. And the disciples just didn't know it was a sandbar. So when they wrote it down, they weren't lying. They just thought he was walking on water, but he wasn't. What? Or they said, oh, when Jesus multiplied the bread and the fishes, you know, he held it up and the sun was probably up there and people probably couldn't see it all the way and so they didn't know how much was actually there. Like, the people would write books and books about this stuff. And I'm just gonna tell you, uh, that project failed pretty spectacularly. 
that way of understanding Christianity, it, it broke down because there's no God to worship there. There's an old theologian from that time, his name was John Gresham Machen, and he says it like this. He says, the New Testament without the miracles would be far easier to believe. But the trouble is, it would not be worth believing. But the very heart of our faith is, is a miraculous work. That our Lord was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And those miracles go throughout, go throughout his life and culminate in his resurrection. That the miraculous is at the heart of what we believe. And this is something, that's, it's important that we grasp this, is that uh, this is not an argument between rationality and irrationality. The presence of miracles, this is not God telling us that two plus two equals five. That is not what this is. That's the way people frame miracles sometimes. That's not it at all. Now, this is not rational versus irrational. This is about us acknowledging that we, we believe that we live in an open system and that the God who created the universe by, his, by the word of his power has the ability to enter into it uh, to accomplish his purposes. So it's a difference between a closed system, right, where there's no influence from the outside, all we have ever is totally natural cause and effect, or an open system where, where God or some kind of spiritual force is able to enter into that system and, and uh, be a cause himself. And people fall on both sides of that, obviously, right? Whether you believe in a closed or an open system as a way of looking at the world. But both of those ways of looking at the world are grounded in fundamental assumptions uh, that cannot be proved or disproved by the scientific method. People say, well, you know, I don't believe that God can intervene in the world because, again, I believe in science. It just makes me think of Nacho Libre, right? Have you seen that movie? I don't believe in God, I believe in science, is what one of the guys says. Anyway, uh, <laughs> neither here nor there. Uh, that at the assumption of a closed worldview, is the, un the unprovable belief that there's no way for God to interact in the world. The scientific method on its own can't prove that. It's, it's, a, it's an assumption that people are making based on faith. In the same way that we can come and make the assumption by faith that God is at work in the world. And there's evidence for that in ways that we can see that. It's not rational or irrational. It's about where we're placing our faith. I think it's important for us to note just as well uh, that over the course of world history and the, the, the overall scope of humanity, uh, most people who have lived in the world have believed in an open system. In fact, most people alive today in the world believe in an open system. Even people who don't believe specifically in, in any uh, given God will believe that it's worth it to pray. That's, that's a hope in an open system. And I say that just to acknowledge that that, that, that should make us question and, and look at critically our own assumptions. Should make us wonder, oh, is there something here that maybe we're, that we're missing that people over the scope of time have actually been able to acknowledge? The miracles that are here at the heart of the Christian story, that they are, there's not a question of irrationality versus rational. It's a totally rational thing to believe, but it's not just rational. It is also beautiful. Here's what our text says this morning. But when the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time, what, 
what the author of Galatians, what Paul is, is pointing us to here is that the moment, uh, the moment that he writes about in this passage is a moment that God had been preparing for for centuries. Last night, uh, I had the, the honor of doing Eric and Mimi Witt's uh, wedding. So Eric and Mimi are here. Woo-hoo, they're married now. Uh, and it was a beautiful night. It was a night that they had been planning for months. Spending a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money getting ready for this moment. It was, it was a moment that was, that was pregnant for them. It was a fullness of time. And when that time came, they got to get married. They stood up uh, in, in, the, in the front and, and there was a ceremony and there was a party and it was this thing they had poured all of this time and effort and energy looking forward to. When the fullness of time had come, that the, the God himself was preparing for a moment like Eric and Amy were preparing for that wedding. That God was bending all of his creative power and energy, anticipation even, toward this moment in history. And you know what that moment in history was? It was the moment when God would send his son to be born of a woman. That God would come to be with us that that is what our God bent his energy toward preparing for. That's what he built his anticipation toward was him coming, humbling himself to, to come and be conceived in the womb of a teenage girl in the middle of first century Palestine. That was the moment that our God had been anticipating because he has desired for, for centuries to come and to dwell with his people. He didn't send an ambassador or an emissary. He didn't run out of time and fail to find somebody else so he had to go himself. No, his desire was to come himself and be among us. John 1.14 says it like this, the world, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as, the, as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. That he put on flesh to the fullest extent possible and came and experienced the entirety of the human experience. Uh, my wife is pregnant with our third child. Woo. So that's fun. Uh, due on September 20th, we have an app that we aren't following along with very closely. We did that for our first child. For the third, sometimes we remember to look at it. And what I learned the other day is that babies in the third trimester have dreams. What? In utero, what do they dream about? I have no idea, right? Our Lord uh, had in utero dreams because he came and experienced all of what it means to be human. That is the beauty of the incarnation. And the implications of him coming among us are vast. That when he came and put on flesh, he honored our humanity. That in the beginning, when God created the world, he said it's good, it's good. And what he said about people is it's very good. And when Jesus came and put on flesh, he acknowledged that. There are all kinds of spiritualities on market in the world, on tap, that will tell you that the goal of being spiritual is to escape this world to escape the prison of our flesh. 
And that's gone, that philosophy has gone by all kinds of names throughout history, stoicism for the Greeks, right? And in some sense, that, that's what uh, that Buddhism can be. If we can just escape the world and its desires and its, its emotions, that that's really the true kind of spiritual state of nirvana. And there are ways that that has uh, kind of entered in and, and twisted parts of the Christian faith. It's masqueraded as truth. Like when people teach that sex is a bad thing or a dirty thing, that in some way it's not good, uh, that's that kind of false spirituality. When they teach, when people teach that the essence of holiness is pushing back uh, from the created world, not enjoying it, that's a twisting of the Christian faith that our Lord was called, uh, he was criticized for being a, a, a glutton and a drunkard is what the gospels say. Now, was Jesus actually a drunkard? No, okay? But the point is that people accused him of that because he, he enjoyed what it meant to be a human. He honored it. The call for us is that we would treat our faith not as this kind of head knowledge that we're just adding to, adding to, adding to that divorces us or pushes us away from the world. No, that the more that we learn about God, that it would draw us deeper into being able to see him and experience him in the everyday of our lives. That he came to this embodied world and put on a body with us, not to rescue us out of it, but to rescue us further into it. slow down and appreciate the created world that we get to live in. Whether it is a casserole around your kitchen table or a steak at Cane Prime, right? That when you sit down for a meal and you taste something and you say, that is good? Yes. That that is a moment for wonder and that wonder has a direction. That through praise and thankfulness that wonder turns into worship. If you live in a closed system, there's no room for that. The wonder has nowhere to go. But our desire to have that wonder expressed towards someone is an indication that we live in an open system, that there's a God who created us, who delights in us, and delights it when we delight in what he created. That's an implication of the incarnation. Because of the incarnation, we also have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That he came and put on flesh as a way of telling us, of telling you, you are not alone. Like, have you ever had somebody celebrate with you? Like when you are looking forward to something with all of your heart and it finally happens and you call them and tell them that it's happened and they scream on the phone with you? Have you ever had that happen? because they know how much you've been anticipating it and they are excited with you for it? Have you ever had somebody sit with you when you're in pain and be silent with you? Be with you? Has somebody even cry with you? Someone who can feel your pain enough that they are sad because you are sad. Those moments are a, a, a taste of how close your Jesus is to you.
when he came and put on flesh so that we could know that that's true. And yet even in those moments, there's a sense of loneliness, isn't there? Proverbs 14.10 says, the heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger can share its joys. That even in our highest highs and our lowest lows, even when the people that we love come around us and are with us, there's still something in us that says, ah, I still am not able to share this to the fullest degree that I would like to be able to. And that's where the scriptures tell us there is a friend who sticks even closer than a brother. And ultimately, that's your Jesus. That he's closer than you could ever imagine. And all your failures and frustrations that come with being human, he says, I know. I know. In all of your temptation and sin, he says, even there, I'm close to you. There's a guy named Dane Orland who wrote a book, Gentle and Lowly, which you guys have heard me read from a lot of times. Dane describes Jesus' witness with us like this. He says, the difficult path that we are on is not unique to us. He has journeyed on it himself. It's not only that Jesus can relieve us of our troubles like a doctor prescribing medicine. It's also that before any relief comes, he's with us in our troubles. Like a doctor who's endured the same disease. God has been all of his creative power to come and to be with you. The incarnation screams out at us, you are not alone. And the temptation is, is as the pain in our lives gets greater that we tend to believe that we are more and more alone. And what the incarnation yells at us is that that is not true. You are never alone because your Jesus is with you. Galatians goes on to say that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, like we've been talking about, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Now we're getting to the intention of the virgin birth or of the incarnation. But in, Jesus, in his coming and his putting on flesh, he acknowledges that this created world is good. And yet what he also acknowledges through his life and ministry, through his death and resurrection, is that the world that we live in is horribly broken. But it's diseased and disfigured by destruction and decay that's been brought into the world by sin. Do you know Mary herself knew this? The virgin that we're talking about, the Virgin Mary, right? How cool is it that she gets a shout out in the Apostles' Creed? What's up? And we can, there are some traditions that venerate Mary, right? And, and kind of in a desire to not do that, sometimes we can push really far away from Mary. No, guys, Mary is someone who is worth celebrating. You know that? A woman who is worth imitating, whose faith was so strong. Not because she was somehow perfect or, or above us, but because she knew the degree that she needed a savior and she called out to God in worship of that fact, even though it was wrecking her life. 
my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's what Mary sings. While Jesus is still in her womb, punching, you know? My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That what Mary knew was that she was in need of a Savior. And that Jesus came and put himself under the law so that he could be our Savior. The law and the law over the course of Scripture is described in a lot of different ways. One of the ways it's talked about in Galatians is that the law can be a taskmaster or a slave driver. And what Paul, what Paul means when he writes about that, he's saying, look, if you believe that the way that you are gonna be made right before God is by obeying God's law, then the law will sit on you like a, like a, like a horrible burden. It will weigh you down. And you don't have to be a, a religious person to experience that. And when the way you think about the world is that I have to be perfect in order to be loved or accepted, it sits on you like a burden. There's no way out of it. And we can even use it, as, as Christians, we can, we can come back under that burden sometimes, can't we? Have you ever been there? You're, what you're expressing to God is I have this desire to please you and live like you want, but instead of that being freeing, it feels like it is always just crushing me. And Paul says, Jesus came and he was born under the law so that he could remove that burden from you. That as an infant, Jesus was born to Jewish parents who brought him up under the law of God. He was circumcised on the eighth day, right? From his infancy, he was living, he was living under the law and he was living up to the law. Even more than that, he was fulfilling the law. And that was true over the course of the whole life that he lived that he upheld the law in every way, not only the letter of it, but also the spirit of it. He didn't set those things in tension, he fulfilled both of them. He fulfilled the law not only by keeping it, but if you think of the law like, a, like some kind of with container, right? And, and the sacrificial system, this idea that you would bring a lamb or wheat or birds or whatever, that you would, that you would kill them and, and somehow that would, that would cover your sin. That was a picture that God provided his people. And it, it put a little bit of water in the jar for them so they could understand this idea of there being a price that needed to be paid so that their sin could be covered, so they could be redeemed and brought out from under the curse of the law. Jesus, he filled that container all the way up to overflowing. He brought those pictures to their fulfillment. He brought those metaphors to life. He fulfilled the law by keeping the law and by filling it up to its full measure by coming under the law himself and bearing the penalty for breaking it that he did not have to bear. He redeemed you. He brought you out from under the law as a taskmaster. That the law is no longer something that you or I have to look to as a way to make ourselves right with God. God has saved us from that. He's brought us out from under that. He says, you are free because I love you. And that 
totally changes the law for us. Now it's not something that we do to get right with God. It's something that helps us understand, Lord, how do you, how do you desire us to live? How do we know what's good for us? Like I said, there is always the temptation to crawl back under the burden of it. The book of Galatians was written to people who were Christians. And Paul was saying, don't do it. Don't let that law sit on you like a burden. You have been redeemed from that. You are free from that. In fact, you have been called sons. And he says sons not, not in a way to distinguish sons and daughters, but he says sons because, because sons in this current in the world that he was writing in were the ones who received all of the inheritance and all of the blessing and all the privileges that came from being a part of a family. And what Paul was saying is man or woman, slave or free, whatever your status in life, you now have the coveted status of a son. That because you have been redeemed out from under the law, you have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. It belongs to you now. And he came, he was incarnated, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary to bring you those blessings. that you're free. And the call of the incarnation is an invitation that we would walk in that freedom. That we would find it beautiful, that we would be shaped by the beauty of it, that it would change the way that we interact with our world, that we enjoy our world, that we even work to protect and conserve this created world that God has given us. we would know that we have a friend who sticks closer than a brother, who is always with us, a friend who has redeemed us, who came under the law so he could rescue us from the burden of the law and brought us out to live in that freedom. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word. Lord, we are thankful for the ways that you, uh, we're thankful for the fact that you have come among us. Lord, that you put on human flesh because of your great love for us. Jesus, how amazing. As we sing and worship this morning, Lord, would you capture us with the beauty of that reality? Would Would you move us, would you shape us by that beauty, Lord? Would you teach us to appreciate the world that you've given us? and to walk in the freedom of people who have been redeemed. Amen.